0: I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well And there's
1: some stories I can tell you
0: This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon coming to you from Cape Town where the third test will start in a couple of days. Jeff, the series is level at one all, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the second test at Port Elizabeth, but we have a cracking guest on the show
1: first. Yeah, that's right. We recorded an interview a couple of days ago in Port Elizabeth. We've spent the uh, interim time driving up the coast around Africa. It's been absolutely ridiculous, stunning scenery. We've finally got to Cape Town. We're in the middle of the drought. There's a whole lot of political action. There are all sorts of things going on in this city, but we'll throw to all of that after we run our feature interview for this show.
0: But before we get to that, Jeff, I'm really thrilled to announce a formal association between the Final Word podcast and Wisden, Wisden Cricket Monthly magazine, to be precise, which starts this episode and they have a new edition out this week.
1: Yeah, that's right. I've... Uh- relaunched. The old All Out Cricket Mag is now Wisdom Cricket Monthly. We've been associated with it for a long time. I'd started out many years ago with a love letter to Shane Watson and <laughs> they've got uh, Sirish Menon who's the Wisdom India editor. He's writing on Virat Kohli and Ishigur on the Indian women's team. Jonathan Liu writes a column, one of the best sports writers in the world. Lawrence Booth who's the editor of the Wisdom Almanac as well. Kumar Sankakara, another regular columnist. So plenty of quality stuff on a regular basis. Yeah, John Stern one of the English senior writers has also interviewed
0: Darwood Milan. He was so fantastic during the Australian Summer. Dale Steyn is having a chat to Telford Vice. Telford is one of our colleagues here in South Africa, one of the most entertaining and considered men you'll ever meet. He speaks at length about how he used to hospitalise himself routinely about trying to repeat the jaunty Rhodes run out, which has a little bit about too many involved in that interview.
1: <laughs> and uh, the level of commitment that Dale Steyn has to the cause. So if you subscribe with a special final word offer, this you is get it. A, I was a massive say, discount.
0: wisdom.com forward slash final word, you get a 30% discount for six editions. So for eight quid, seven ninety nine, so thirteen or fourteen dollars in our money, you get six editions of the magazine. That is an absolute steal. For the best cricket magazine in the world, that you're not going to get that sort of price anywhere else. Yeah,
1: and that'll be, you know, delivered to your tablet your phone, your computer, whatever it is, wherever you uh, read your digital content around the world. You'll continue hearing stuff from Jeff and I in there as well. I'm their Australian
0: correspondent, another one of the hats I wore. I interviewed Steve Smith at length before the Ashes series, who was very forthcoming in that chat. Obviously, Wisden is the most respected masthead in all of the game. The Almanac's out in a couple of months, and the magazine's
1: a proud addition to the collection. So jump on there. It's wisdom.com slash final (music) word.
0: This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Flemm. Our feature interviews so far on the show have been with elite cricketers, Jason Gillespie, Vic Marks, and David Warner. This time we're engaging a man who's made an art form of telling the stories of sport and holding decision makers to account. He started his career in the early nineties the old school way in the newspaper business at the Herald Sun. This included roles as the newspaper's film critic and music section editor. At the same time, he earned a reputation for interviewing and profiling the big names in sport, which has been a theme ever since. TV called Soon Enough, a feature on the nightly news in the middle of winter at cold football training sessions. He was famously evicted live on air from the new Docklands Football Stadium concourse by an overzealous security card in the year 2000. When the Olympics came to Australia, he was in the middle of breaking open a big drug scandal. In 2001, he was back to the general news beat at Channel 7, where a Quill Award followed for outstanding reporting. But soon enough, he was back to sport full-time, and he's never left. From the early 2000s, he became a fixture in ABC Radio's coverage of football, horse racing and tennis, graduating to the position of lead sport broadcaster in 2004. When the Offsiders television show began in 2005, he was a regular panellist and eventually took over as the show's host. From 2010, his AFL 360 show began on Foxtel, where it's become a nightly staple of the football season. He literally wrote the book on Australia's most famous mare, Black Caviar, The Horse of a Lifetime, and his call of her win at Royal Ascot became the soundtrack of an unforgettable moment just as it was when Kyle Chalmers won Olympic gold in the 100 metres freestyle at Rio in 2016. He's won every award in Australian sports broadcasting, including the AFL's most outstanding media performer in 2015 and 2017. And in cricket, he led the ABC's renewed coverage starting in 2015, where he hosted and commentated for three summers. On New Year's Day this year, he announced he'd moved to Melbourne's SCN 1116. He's already been to Minnesota to become the first Australian to call the Super Bowl, then came here to South Africa to call the first two test matches. Then it's back to Melbourne for a morning show. Waitley during in the football week and football commentary at the weekend. Jeff and I have worked with him in various capacities over the last few years, and we're speaking to him today from his hotel in Port Elizabeth. Of course, it's none other than Jared Whateley. G'day, Jared.
2: Adam, Jeff, thank you. It's a great honour to be part of it.
0: It was a long intro, but I thought it was worth it to give the full picture to those who listen, not just Australia and in Melbourne, but abroad as to where you've been and where you're going it's been quite the journey by any measure
2: makes me sound quite busy doesn't it gosh there are (laughs) so many moments which are really vivid i've been incredibly lucky and when you recount a few as olympic games and royal ascot with black caviar and um, and cricket and footy and melbourne cups and that sort of thing is when i was growing up my my nine year old self would hardly be able to believe that this is what we have been allowed to do because it's All I ever wanted is I'd be like a whole lot of kids in Australia. Footy, cricket and racing were my heritage. Dad taught me everything that I know about sport. I can recall him saying to me one day we were sitting at the MCG. He said, imagine if they paid you to be here. And I can track my passion to that moment. And those are words which shaped my journey. There's an
1: intensity to the way you go about it, racing back and forth across the world, around the country. Are there times where you struggle to keep hold of that gratitude or is that always there?
2: No, there are moments where, like everybody, it wears you down and you sort of feel like uh, it's a grind. But I do have this, this sort of embrace the grind. The grind is actually what makes it worthwhile. And then you remember that, you're sitting at a Super Bowl, I mean, wow. And then you're doing test cricket in South Africa on my first journey here. And back home, the lifeblood of Melbourne is AFL, so that awaits. So I, I've i never taken it for granted, not a single day of it. So yes, where there are moments where you get a bit weary and think, oh, gee, this is how we're going to go with today. Um, I could have a real job. Yeah. So no, I consider myself extremely fortunate. And I hope I always hold that, because it is the dream job, and if you confuse your passion and your work, I can't think of a better way to live.
0: You spoke persuasively about this with the mission statement, the state of a nation you gave when you first moved to SCN and hosted your first show, Waitley, the morning show on the, on the network. Uh, what we're going to try and do, Jared, is unpick that a little bit, yeah. and drill down into each individual section and see whether we can really bring to life your your career in sports broadcasting. Yeah,
2: so my idea was just to lay out to people who aren't necessarily familiar with me as who I am. So my idea is this is going to be an exchange of passions. So it was a cards on the table moment. This is how I see sport. And how I've engaged with it and what's brought me here and sort of what lights the way.
0: What we'll try and do is I'll read a section or Jeff will read a section. (laughs) We'll ask you a couple of questions and we'll move to the next one. Let's go from the top. It was once said that jazz was the language of New Orleans and so sport is the language of Melbourne. From its boardrooms to its classrooms and its work sites, from the tuck shop to the cafe and the pub. We claim to be the sporting capital of the world and that's not some vacuous boast but a standard of living. Why does it work for us like that in Melbourne and not elsewhere? Why is it so pronounced in our city?
2: I think it's because of the spread of what we have and how we are born into it. We are born into an idea that sport is fundamental to our character. And it is our claim that you can enter any conversation at any level in Melbourne life for all of those destinations if you've got some connection with sport. So it is what binds us it was the concept around AFL 360 was to get two people who were the polar opposite in life and see if every night they could stage a conversation about footy. And the answer is unequivocally yes. And that's true of everybody watching as well. So I think it is our birthright. And then we are incredibly lucky. And this is why I'll never... Let Melbourne, in my mind, be reduced to a footy town. It is one of the great footy towns of the world. It might be the greatest footy town in the world because it, it has 10 teams of a national mm. competition. But it also has Grand Slam tennis. So we've had Roger Federer. We've seen the very best of Roger Federer in our own backyard. It's got the Grand Prix, which is... That's the one that is a little bit abrasive as to whether you're with it or against it. It's probably the one that, that sets apart a little bit on that front. It has the Melbourne Cup, which is one of the great races of the world which, and has become an ambition from from all continents to come and be a part of it. So if you, if you just shut yourself off for, for seven months or even 12 months of the year for footy, there's so much that you're missing out on. And I do think that the spread is even greater than... In my experience, the other great sporting city of the world is New York, but there's so much else going on in New York that it tends to, the sport is a part of it, but it's not the governing part of it. Whereas I think in Melbourne, we're we're governed by our sport.
1: Is it about physical characteristics as well? Because one of the key things about Melbourne is space, where by footprint it's one of the biggest cities in the world and by population it's nowhere near that. There's space for racetracks. There's space for running up and down the Yarra. There's space for football grounds and cricket. You can have ovals rather than little square soccer grounds crammed into the corners as you do in places in England.
2: Yeah, I'm sure it is. And so from its earliest moments, sport was treasured. And we are extremely lucky to have that precinct. So you walk to the mouth of Swan Street and depending on the season... you can hear the the felt on the strings and that's when your soles of your shoes are melting into the pavement. It's so hot and the Australian Open tennis is there as you can hear the, the crack of leather on willow over at the MCG or the roar of a crowd from, from an AFL match. And, you know, if you're really lucky, you can wander down and see Collingwood train down on the right. And you might get a, an international soccer team that's passing through as well. So to have that precinct within walking distance of the city, I'm sure that, that's a fundamental part of it. But it is the great tell, I reckon. So I think in Rome, when you, when you walk around the corner and bang, there's the Colosseum, and you understand instantly what that was in the old world of Rome, I think when you walk around the corner and see the MCG on Brunton Avenue in exactly the same way, you go, oh, I get this. This is the actual heart of Melbourne.
1: Yeah, the physical location of it being right within the fabric yep. of that city rather than a lot of say the cricket grounds we've been to where you're travelling far outside some of the cities in India or Sri Lanka or even South Africa.
2: Yeah, even Sydney. Like so you know it's it's so far out in Sydney that it's it's a voyage to go and be a part of it. In Melbourne, and it was deliberately conceived this way, you know, the MCG was to be there right next to the city. And the engagement from there has always been thus, and I think you know that plays out every Friday night of the AFL season. as just the swell of people comes from town or from Richmond Station to go and be a part of what's taking place.
1: Your line was in Melbourne, we are intrinsically sports fans, but we're not sports fans to the exclusion of all else. Here, sport is so often the way into a deeper conversation. In terms of going across to SEN, which was perceived as a pretty narrow focus sports station, that seemed like you were really putting down a flag to say, we're going to broaden the focus and bring in other parts of the cultural life of this country. Was that really important for you to lay that marker from the beginning?
2: Yes, and it's what um, it's what the new management wants. That Instead of just talking to a narrow group of hardcore footy fans, is we want to talk to that group, but we want to talk to everybody who's a sports fan in Melbourne. So when... When we hit Melbourne Cup Week, when we hit grand final week, when we hit the two weeks of the Australian Open, everybody is engaged with it. It's not for just the hardcore group who who speak the language of sport almost to the exclusion of all else. It's, the beauty of it is, is that every school kid, every parent, every volunteer, every professional and this is why it's true from you know, so from the pub to the boardroom to the tuck shop, we're all engaged in sport. But these moments that come along is this is going to be an election year in Victoria. Sport has a role in that, but also it's compulsory to vote. Mm. So every sports fan is going to have to vote. I can't see why you would cut that part of the conversation out. We will never speak about anything that is not anchored in sport. Oh, that, that's not the way that I view it. And then there are regrettably, there are days in our town and we are getting too familiar with them. When sport just has to be put aside, days of tragedy and days of trauma, and you can't just continue on with the sporting conversation and pretend that the real world's not unfolding because we're all caught up in that. So there has to be the capacity, I think, to, to have those um, mature and provocative conversations and to go, yes, we will get back to the sport. But just for this moment in time, it can't be the focus of our attention.
0: That that sort of broad intellectual interest inquiry that you bring to the job, like film and other areas which have the narrative pulsing through them is what makes them great. Yet we have this sort of false dichotomy about sport being allegedly anti-intellectual and being anti-sport is indeed intellectual. Yet every university professor in Melbourne has a football team.
2: Yeah, and... Sport's not the escape from life. Quite often, sport is the reflection of life, and we can clearly learn a lot from sport, but not if you shut real life out and the real lessons of it. So, and I think that we do follow sport in that way. I think we are eternally searching for meaning in sport. It is tremendously reassuring when you come across the person within sport who has achieved and they understand. What they have done, they understand what it means to them. They understand what it means to their game more broadly, and they're able to articulate and engage in that. And that's what that's what I'm in it for. And it's only one way. Is the other bit with the station is you, you would not want every show to be the same. Every show should have its individual character and its individual conversation. So across the spread of a day, you you get all the threads of the way sport lives in Melbourne. So and. Uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a place for this, especially nine till twelve. And you think about the space that that's been with John Fane and Neil Mitchell in Melbourne. I think there's a space for that with a sporting bent, and so that's what I would like to. That my ambition is to create that show, and make it worthy of not only people listening but worthy of the engagement of everybody who has a stake in sport in Melbourne to reflect back on your words the ambition
0: is to create a program true to Melbourne's devotion to sport and its place in our day-to-day lives to stage conversations worthy of the key influences at the heart of our game the players coaches and administrators to convene a daily discussion and debate that drives the sporting narrative and inspires you to be part of it key influences you've always found a way of being able to tap into uh, these powerful ecosystems and holding people to account. Is that where you see your, your most important role there to make sure that you can have the conversation with the person that matters and ask the hardest question?
2: Yes, and that's the, you know, as Lee Sales does that every night, is the capacity to get the person at the centre of the news cycle to come on. So there are all the conversations that go on around it and we all talk to each other about it. But the only way to drive to the heart of it is to get the person on. Sport is not great on this front. Is you are much more likely to get the prime minister on than you are to get the right footy coach at the right time, which has been a. I think that's been something that's been allowed to drift, and you would like to correct. It is if I was one of these people on the day where I'm the centre of the news, I would want to do the right interview. You want to face the right questions. You want the chance to put your side. You want your Ideas and beliefs challenged, and then you come to the end of that and see how you fared. And I often think when you watch those interviews on seven thirty, and you think, well oh, that person didn't fare particularly well," is but that's the idea. You front up again next time, and you have your ideas challenged. Uh, and I think there's there's because of the importance that sport holds in in Melbourne and in Australia, I think that's right there to be done. Is on the day where. Australia's cricket team culture is at the heat of the question if I'm at home I think the chief executive should be on that day in the right forum being asked the right questions and being able to put forward what they believe and what they will do so and that's the idea is to create that environment where they actually want to participate and whether we do or we don't is that will ultimately be be judged on whether we're successful in doing that you said that you'd
1: observe and revel in the seasons of our eclectic sporting city and perhaps something that dulls the reflex negative response that has crept into our sporting consciousness and reminds us of its capacity to delight and bind. What do you mean by that negativity? And, and is, yep. it, is it about a polarised world? Is it reflecting broader political trends? Or, or yes. What else do you yep. say
2: there? So I think the flinch reaction is now a negative reaction and that's not just sport. And I think you could you could look at American politics and and develop a thesis on that front but sport centrally should give us joy so sometimes in the past i've listened to back and thought all of these people are so miserable about sport how have we allowed ourselves to get there are we getting any joy from it are we just venting here or is this how we're living our sporting experience so i think certainly in in my professional life i have seen this happen and exactly where the tipping point is, losing became more important than winning. So the reflex is to go, they lost mm. instead of they won. Now, there's there's clearly both sides to that coin. But if you're always looking for why did they lose, and you go, well, sometimes the other team just beat them and somebody must lose. So I think, regrettably, we've allowed ourselves to be walked down that path where we Instantly obsess on the negative instead of missing the joyful moment of achievement and so I, I think um, I, I really hold a, a an active perspective on that don 't look to the negative first let 's just see what happened here and then judge whether the game was won or whether it was lost and editorially angle that way but instead of just the flinch to the negative, um, I want to see if we can guide back to let 's revel in it first and then obsess over it second.
0: I was thinking about that line when I was reading it last night. Do you think this has got dramatically worse in the last 10 years or so? Is it a little bit like uh, art imitating life? You mentioned US politics, but Australian politics, and in turn, sport has followed suit, or do you think it was always that way and it's just got maybe 10% worse?
2: No, I think it's got dramatically worse, and I can say that through my experience as a fan, and then I've watched it. I'm sure I've watched it during my professional career as it's gone further and further down that path and it will remain down that path It's not going to suddenly lead a revolution back the other way but if you can create a space where we revel first and criticize second then both are perfectly legitimate so let's not forget to revel i'm not saying let's not run the critical analysis but let's not forget to revel because every day that you go to a sporting event there is something you know i sat there and watched ab de Villiers live across two days and thought, i haven't seen that firsthand before and so there's always something for us but if you if you're only looking at it in one particular way i think you're you're not doing justice to it and and right as i say, right at the nub of it is it, it just felt to me like too many people were reacting to sport that was making them miserable that can't be the way we live because there's so much in life in recent years to make us genuinely miserable is surely sport is the the antidote to part of that
1: so is it your job to be the conduit for that happiness i think
2: so at at least to talk about it and then people either will want to or they won't want to and you'll be able to judge that by whether people ring in and revel in the events of the weekend and then we get to you know the the questions for the relevant people at the relevant time and you know sport probably has a role to play in this is there's been i think again across the course of my professional life a reticence to talk about achievement individuals just immediately glibly deflect to the team instead of going no no can we not talk about your personal achievement without it coming across as something else right we understand that and then talk about the team and the team accomplishment is a lot but in u.s sport they are clearly you know they're braggarts in a way because they will they'll talk about what they did and what their role in it and if we're deprived that and i think as a matter of conditioning players have been conditioned not to revel in what they did uh, and I think that's a terrible pity because if they won't let us in then how do we get in
1: It's something that I find a bit deadening where it's okay you've kicked eight goals and the response will be well I was lucky to get on the end of a few or you just made a brilliant hundred oh well the other guys hung around with me and it was a team effort and and as you say there's a reluctance to focus on actual brilliance when it's actually taken place before our eyes and we're sort of being told no that didn't happen.
2: And it is possible to do both like I think Especially in Australian sport there's been a method towards being over cautious is don't talk about yourself. I oh, can't really have that. It is in the movement of achievement, of course, there is team and we will talk about team. But there is also the moment where sport is shaped by individual actions. Let's delve into those individual actions and do it in a sensible, measured way and create an environment where we're not asking you to be a braggart and we won't judge you as such, but give us an insight into how did it happen? What was it like? Did it build throughout an innings throughout a day? Have you had a day like it? I think those are, all, those are all areas that a player should feel comfortable in talking about, and yet I think they've been conditioned to avoid.
0: I wonder the upsurge of first-person websites designed for athletes to tell their yeah. story in recent times is because they don't necessarily trust us yeah. to do it for them as, as narrators, such as Nathan Lyon last year. took eight for 50 at Bangalore. We called that Test Match, Gerard after the play he he attributed it to how well his colleagues bowled up the other end. He just took eight for fifty on day yeah. one at Bangalore and set up a you know a fantastic test match. I, I do think they don't maybe don't trust us to do our yeah. jobs for them in a way that's fair and in a way that they can ensure be consistent when they do poorly as well.
2: Yep. And I think we've all played a role in getting there. So the only way out is to play an active role the other way. So that's my view. And then so it is trying to create a space where say, Glenn Maxwell, who's agreed, uh, just in an editorial arrangement, there's no money involved, just to share his story throughout his cricketing year, be it Shield Cricket, be it International Cricket, be it the IPL. Just let us tap in every couple of weeks to what is going on. What what have you done? What are you feeling? What are you working on? What was that night like? Which cities have you been to? Is to create an environment where it's a proper conversation, so it's not judged as a a thirty second clip. Here, this is a conversation that was fifteen minutes two weeks ago. Fifteen minutes with so it'll be fifteen minutes in two weeks' time. So, and this is why I say it, you can only um, change it if you play an active role. And so that's the idea. The idea is to play an active role in reshaping the conversation and perhaps creating a space where where players are, are more likely to be to be open and and speak honestly. And to reflect on what their part in it is.
0: To the fun stuff, Jared. Your, your <laughs> words. I'm a child of Alan Border, Gary Ablett, Senior, in LA Law. I'm inclined to think the peak of civilization was either WrestleMania 3 or the 1989 Grand Final. I'm certainly not going to argue with you on the second <laughs> part there. These are the fun bits. So, okay, I want to know where you were sitting the 1989 Grand Final or alternatively 89, 92, 94, 95 those Grand Finals that Geelong lost yep. in succession I want to know what, where you were and how you felt those games Yeah. younger Man
2: so I was in the left forward pocket in 89 so it's interesting is your my view of the game is different to how it looks on television mm. this is one of the beauties of being there so it was where Ablett came up over the boundary throw and kicked oh, yeah. the goal yep. so that, that was where I was um It was, you knew you'd been at something magnificent and there was no real sense of disappointment uh, in my Geelong heart that day, is the Blight era was an incredible era of footy where the actions were so much greater than the results in a way. So 89, and it does for everybody, doesn't it? It, it? That lives as the most compelling and brutal and spectacular game, the team of the era against... Uh, Malcolm Blight coached Gary Abbott led team who you know put on the most extraordinary show it was high scoring and a few more minutes and it would have been a different result and then there was the brutality mm. to it right from the start to the end so I don't think you could come up with a contest more packed with those elements and more satisfying than that so every now and then whenever it's on and I'll stumble across it I'll sit there and watch some of it but it lives just a bit differently in my mind than it looks on the telly. It, it's obviously reflected there, but that's the thing of being there.
0: Are you still a fan watching it? When Schultz kicks that goal with 44 seconds to go, do you think, we can get down the other end, still <laughs> do it, we can still do it, or, or, or are you watching it more impartially partially nearly yeah. years on?
2: Because <laughs> I don't, this is the weird bit, is I don't crave winning that game. Right. Hmm. And that's, you know, the, the history of it, it just lives. So I don't seek to change it, um, I don't crave it panning out any differently, uh, and that's that's not true of grand finals that followed. But right. there is something pure and magnificent about '89. Is '92 was disappointing because Geelong sort of looked the winners in the first half but ultimately weren't good enough, is the thing in the four years that they made it, they weren't the best team in any of those years, and they got beaten by the best team in each of those years. There are a couple of years where they didn't make it where they were the best team, and those those great a little bit. They botched 91, and then 97 was botched on their behalf. But the best time I've ever had following footy was the final series of 94, and that's... You know, they were beautiful. I was in the southern stand, lower deck of the southern stand with my father, future father-in-law. Claire and I weren't married at that stage. Um, When Gary Ablett kicked the goal after the siren to beat North Melbourne and we hugged. And we didn't hug on Claire on our wedding day, but we <laughs> hugged in that moment. Uh, so there was the... And we went, as, we went as a group to... So I went with Claire's brothers and her dad to each of those uh, three finals in the lead-up. So... You know, Billy Brown was yes, the King yeah. of Geelong after the siren against the Bulldogs, a game that they looked like they'd lost mm-hmm. and they won in 10 seconds. Out to Waverley where half the team were late withdrawals. Mm-hmm. And they played Carlton and you just thought, oh, this can't happen, and they walloped Carlton that day. And then, yeah, the 94 preliminary final is as a singularity my favourite game where they beat North Melbourne after the siren with the hand of God. Uh, so 94 is a is a perfectly positive experience. They got walloped in the grand final and it didn't matter a jot. They they were terrible in 95, and that was a disappointment. Carlton was the best team, but they gave up really early. So, yeah, that one burnt for a while. But the Colbert mark of 97, I think they probably would have won the flag that year. Yeah, so, you know, I'm the same as every footy fan. There are There are the days that haunt you, and then there are days that give you just great pleasure and not always in victory.
1: There was that feeling of surfing a wave through that 94 bit. I was at all those games as a kid, though, with my dad, and, and I think he felt this great sense of responsibility that he kept taking me to losing grand finals. And, <laughs> and the, the last in the sequence after, you know, the fourth, the, the one in 95, fell on my birthday. It happened that year because they'd pushed it back out. Yep. And, you know, and I was sitting there in my Gary Ablett jumper and he got one kick, was it, for the game. And mm-hmm. Stephen Silvani completely... No, yeah. Yeah, And completely then you
2: go you go as a Geelong fan in that era and we'd had such great times but we hadn't won it and you sort of started to think I might never see them win one (laughs) and I'd always said to um, my Bulldogs friends all my Richmond friends, and I say it to you Melbourne friends, is when it happens, it is so great. And it is so great when it happens. And 2007, yeah, yeah. you're
0: calling the grand final yep. for the ABC. I can't fathom calling a grand final with Hawthorne playing. It would be
2: far too much me. You've done it quite a few times with so Geelong. But
0: 2007, you didn't make it through the game.
2: No, no. So I was sick. We were all sick. John Fain had brought a disease back from somewhere and infected the whole office. <laughs> and I remember calling the opening siren... Of the 07 grand final, and my voice crackled, and I thought, Oh, I'm in strife here. And I made it through the first half with a deteriorating voice, but just had nothing at half time. So I tagged out and uh, Rob Waters came in to call the us we had to find someone to call it and then Drew Morfitt was sick as well and by the presentation he had no voice left so Peter Donegan came in to call <laughs> he'd done the grand final sprint on telly so he came in to do the presentations for us as we were just crook it did mean that I was able to go down into the rooms after they'd won it because I was useless to anyone else and just soak it all in and I do feel extremely privileged to have had those moments to, to understand what it meant to people and, and to be able to have some share in that in the back half of that year when the lid became keep the lid on keep the lid on as my and we'd take talkback calls on this every monday morning you go i can't i can't be that person if all the payoff to a year to a lifetime following football is fear that it might not happen and Like, I want to live the whole experience is I believe Geelong would win the flag from about the midway point of that year and the more they won, the more certain I was that they were going to win and I did get the full payoff. Like, they were home at the six minute mark of the second quarter. Mm. So I've got cautious friends who wouldn't believe in it until halfway through the last quarter when three quarter time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry,
1: the goal for, for us it was the goal just after three quarter time when the lead went to a hundred points. Right. So I right. looked at my dad and said, I think we're
2: it. Right. <laughs> so Nathan Ablett early in mm. the second quarter and I knew they would win. But yeah. so I'm I'm a different I'm a different breed of supporter on that front and, and I truly think that you have to sort of I think if you hand yourself totally over to it, the payoff has to be more than, oh, mm. what a relief that we finally won it. It has to be that i waited my whole life for this. and So, you know, I go into every... I don't care whether people judge me. I go into every season thinking that they can win it and follow the journey until they don't. <laughs> but having seen them win three, as I'm not a supporter that gets narky, and I actually get narky with supporters who do get narky. you go, how much more... Do you want? How much yep. more do you want to live through? And I think that, and this is where a team that goes from, I don't know whether we were the downtrodden, because we weren't, because there was so much good stuff to watch. We got to watch Gary Ablett every week, senior and then junior. If all you can see is winning, then I think you've lost sight of what our journey was as a supporter group.
0: Putting the other side of the equation for a grand final day, you've had to be the narrator, you've had the privilege of being the narrator for, for many people's special moment. For me, 2008, we spoke about this before. I won't forget your call of the 2008 Grand Final, especially the closing moments. You talk about '89. Dennis Cometti, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you've witnessed a classic. Like these last moments of Grand Final yeah. are so important. How much work do you put into those to make sure that you have the right words to capture the emotion of people who are experiencing something they will never forget? Yeah,
2: so this is, there's no right or wrong to this. It's just how I approach it. You have to have the words to match the feet, and then there's. That awkward ground in the middle is you don't want to script things because sport isn't that, it's spontaneous. But you do want to have an immediate understanding of this is what happens, this is what it means, this is where it fits. So you want to have thought through the possibilities, in my opinion. No, no, not you, I. I want to have thought through the possibilities contained within this contest, and if this happens, or this happens, or this happens. And I tend to wander early in last quarters and start to think about, right, so where are we? What are we leading to? And what does that look like? And sometimes you feel like you get it, and sometimes you don't. And Bruce McIverand is really good on this. as He says, you know, there are Friday nights. He goes home, and he's lying awake in the hotel, and he goes, oh, that's what I should have said. <laughs> and it's three hours too late. And, but then there are the days where you go, where you just say it, and you think, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what this is. So... My motivators are you want to do justice to what's in front of you and then you want to be able to convey it to people who aren't there. So that those are the two responsibilities. It's not an indulgence. So calling Hawthorne beating Geelong, is I, I don't find that difficult. Yes, I have a set of disappointments in my heart, but they're not entitled to be aired because it's not a personal indulgence to be there. It's a the responsibility to be there and make sure that Hawthorne's moment lives. Mm. So when people ask, do you find it difficult to to call John, I don't. And I think there is a bias in the ear of some listeners who will sort of never get past the fact that they know a caller belongs to something or another. But you're not there for that. You're there to try to do justice to the feats of the day.
1: I think that ties back into what you were talking about before about exhaustion and weariness and so on. I sometimes think when calling a particularly slow, dull session of a test match... I can't afford to believe that this is boring because I've got people listening who need to be entertained and they need, to, they need me to find something in the contest. They need me to find some energy to help them enjoy it. Otherwise, if my boredom is infecting everybody else who's listening in, then I'm doing a disservice yeah, to those
2: people. Uh, so I think that, that's right. It, it's not – you have no right to be bored – if the contest is legitimately boring then you do have a responsibility to convey the way that these men are playing the way these women are playing is is terrible mm. so there was a game i gave up on a game a lot of years ago at docklands between melbourne and the giants when kevin sheedy gave up on the game and so it was the early days of the giants and he put everybody back and it was it was ridiculous but that was it wasn't the personal indulgence of going well I'm bored, care, this man. is wasting my time. It's going, they've actually given up on this game, and therefore, it was boring. So, the delineations are in there. It, it's your job to search for what's going on. So, the, the middle session of day two, none for 43. That wasn't boring. No. Is, that was in its own peculiar way. It was entirely compelling. There were no runs being scored. Yeah. The bowling was trying everything. South Africa were playing to a grander purpose, and then... If you interpret that right, you get to work with that on the morning of day three and go, ah, this is what it was, it was rope-a-dope here, Mm -hmm. and this is the payoff now. So, yeah, I think that point is exactly right, but where the game actually of itself becomes boring, you are not only entitled to, you're obliged to convey that as well.
0: I want to pluck out one more thing from that previous statement about WrestleMania three. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's clearly something you have in common with your new chief executive, Craig Hutchie. <laughs> Hutchie tells a wonderful story on his was his podcast, The Sounding Board, about how you two fell out over Lee Colbert's departure uh, from Geelong and an airport. Uh, ruse of sorts, how you got misdirected. Uh, I want to hear your side of that story. He tells it very amusingly, but how do you how do you
2: recall that episode at the time? Uh, I don't sort of have any great desire to revisit that. Is the, the way Craig articulated that that's my recollection of it. Okay. I know that's the reference point, so I'd probably just like to spin back a fraction earlier than that. Is we so he started at the Herald Sun a year after I did. Mm-hmm. I was his mentor in the cadetship program, and after two weeks. Uh, he was teaching me stuff that I'd never realised was going on in my <laughs> 12 months and two weeks there. Uh, and we... Um, so I was... Uh, he was at my wedding. We spent a lot of... Time. Claire, um, me and Craig spent a lot of time together in those formative years. Um, we learned to call footy together in a, in a shonky studio in St Kilda Road where he was about to get his opportunity with Channel 7. And I'm sure Claire came in and panelled for us while we were learning to do it. And so we had a lot of shared heritage. When the possibility came for me to go to Channel 10, he took me into the Channel 7 studios the night before my screen test to teach me about voice projection and how to speak on television. So we had a lot of history. I think if I'm really... Um, if I reflect honestly, I carried that too deeply for too long, and it's been really nice to reconnect in the last, uh, in the last couple of months and yes we you know the wrestling side of things is a funny thing. I think I think we both harbor an ambition to go to a WrestleMania <laughs> and maybe take SEM there. I hope I'm not giving away secrets but one day.
1: From Jared's quote A lump rises in my throat when the Jamaicans carry the bobsled over the finish line at the end of Cool Runnings, no matter how many times I've seen it. Oh, I mean, come on, if you don't cry at that point, you're not human. (laughs) It was noticeable, working with you on ABC, that often at the end of a day of test cricket you'd immediately head off to the movies and, you know, go and watch whatever the latest release was. You've got an obsession with narrative, and that's a huge part of sport, you know, as well as the physical achievements of athletes. There's the story. It's all about the story. As pure curiosity, your, your other favourite sports films where your Venn diagram crosses over?
2: Yeah, so I love the natural, is the best there ever was. And I oh, know, you know, these things can become cliche, but the first time you see it, they're not. And the ball into the lights and the shadow. I mean, that's just a spectacular ending to a movie. Uh, cool Runnings is a ripper film, and my kids have started to watch it, uh, and it, it holds up. And. I know, just before the Winter Olympics Channel 7 put the real clip up, and I wish I hadn't watched it, because the movies just, (laughs) you know, they did walk across it, they weren't carrying the bobsled, so you can go a little bit too far. Um, Yeah, The the Natural's the other one I touched to, but, uh, like, the Rocky films are excellent. They deteriorate as we go, as as it turns out, Rocky. So, Rocky Four is a big part of my childhood, so we're Cold War kids, the trailer was the two gloves the american glove and the russian glove coming together and smashing so you sort of had the your months out going oh how good is this going to be as it turns out it's just a series of video clips and it's one of the worst pieces of propaganda ever <laughs> committed to film but that's not how i remember it as a kid so you know you can be forgiven for those sport is it offers such great possibilities it's a pity we don't have a, a crack at it in australia a little bit more I love the Bodyline miniseries.
0: Oh yeah, I studied it for university.
2: Yeah, let me yeah. They let me write an essay about. <laughs> so the, I've the Gary got the Sweet, DVDs Hugo of Weaving. that, and, mm. and they sit there. Yeah, I mean Hugo Weaving's superb Brilliant. in that, and Gary Sweet playing Don Bradman, mm. and the way that it ties all that in. So, yeah, as there are such great stories in sport. Farlaps a terrific movie. Sea Biscuits mm. are a great movie. Um, yeah, they're like. I love sports movies.
1: Are you saying that Save Your Legs with Stephen Curry is not a great
2: <laughs> sports film? So, but I don't begrudge anyone. Let's have a crack at them because, yes, it is you know I know there's this tendency to make really bleak and dark and violent films, but we're a bit more than that. And so, you know, I have this ridiculous side. I would love to write a screenplay. And it wouldn't be about sport, but sport would be in the background because sport's always in the background. of Everything we do in Australia, it would be there somewhere. Mm.
0: Maybe the Bulldogs 2016 flag, which people always that, say will one day be 10. Yeah, to the no, flag. that,
2: that will be happening in the
0: background, whatever <laughs> I right.
2: It'll
1: be a biopic of Bob Murphy.
0: So. <laughs> okay. I like it when the Marshes play for Australia. Now, I wanted to use this as an entry point to your relationship with cricket. Yeah, broadly, was there a frustration for you when you came to be calling cricket for the ABC and people reflexively said, "But he's the footy racing guy. What's he? Doing? Yeah, what's yeah. he doing in the summer of commentating cricket? He's not. He's not that guy." Yeah,
2: so I'm a sports broadcaster, and I think if you're fair about that and look through my body of work, you know that I'm not one thing nor another. And I really like. I, I've studied what happens in the states, and you look at Al Michaels and the sports that he's done. Is there is the capacity to move between them and have an expertise Mm. that belongs to all of them, and you respect the game, you respect the differences in the game. But nor do you have to quarantine one from the other. Like, there are, I found when I came to cricket, there were obvious lessons from footy which cricket hadn't learnt. And some of it was about high performance, and some of it was about selection. And every sport is different. But there's an arrogance if you think, no, we're completely removed from the rest of the idea of high-performance sport. That's just not true. It's not true from baseball to football to ice hockey to basketball in the States. And it's not true from footy to cricket to racing to rugby league in Australia. So uh, it wasn't a frustration. It was just if that's all – if you think I'm the footy guy, then you haven't been paying attention. Mm. And I'll just get to work give me a go and if i'm no good at it then that's fine but yeah as if they'd said to el michael's no no you can't do this because you do that yeah wow what what we would have missed out on in an international broadcasting sense did you go into
1: that with a determination to prove your worth there or were uh, you just about? Worth?
2: no the, the determination was a collective determination it was to um it was to re-energize and that has been the, that had been the task given to me. So it wasn't a personal crusade. It was mm. to re-energise uh, the cricket on the ABC, and and bring it into the modern setup of the way sport was broadcast. That was outlined to me very specifically, and what I did was absolutely in line with what our superiors had asked for
0: and you grew up with cricket just as you did yeah absolutely so
2: my three were footy cricket racing growing up I wasn't a very good cricketer but I was certainly a better cricketer than I was a footballer and I was a better cricketer than I was a punter so (laughs) so the the sport had always held a place for me and I understood it and I studied it and I'd readied myself for it
1: tell us about your background with it though didn't you run off from a cricket game to go and as Get to the races Yeah, day, that's
2: or... true. So the 1990 Cox Plate. So the first horse I ever loved was Better Loosen Up, and I was playing cricket, not at a very high standard, so I don't want to, for a moment, pretend that I played at a good standard, but I would play with my mates in suburban cricket, and I was a door-opening batsman. I could take the shine off the ball, but I couldn't score. And once I'd done that my mates were just actively hoping I would get out so we could get on with the business of scoring <laughs> runs. So they were quite happy for me to do my job at the top and then get out. But this one day, I was actually making runs. I may never have made more runs than uh, than I'd made that day, but I had a time I had to hit where Dad was picking me up to take me to Mooney Valley because I wasn't missing better loosen up. Uh, so I did. I jumped down the wicket and hit the spinner straight in the air, got caught at mid-off. Walked off, walked past everybody, picked up my gear and got in the car. (laughs) And you can imagine how this looks. It looks like a, a temperamental moment. But I just had to get to the valley, and it was—it's still—it's such a great cox plate. you on Yeah, so you uh, clean yeah. up more on the cricket. So I'm absolutely guilty of that.
0: Do you see yourself as a broadcaster now, being that that quintessential footy in the winter, cricket in the summer, and doing that cycle and touring with the cricket as you have in the last couple of years? Is this the the next stage for you as a, a long term project?
2: And um, and I guess this is the dream at SEN is to Craig Hutchinson's dream is to accumulate rights to live sport to augment the conversation around sport and yeah one of the great attractions in going there is to is to be part of that and to to be at the forefront of that and so you know my er, my first experiences are uh, Super Bowl which was just incredible South African test cricket and then back home for AFL so I feel like it's delivered against the idea of what it was going to be and I feel especially lucky um to be to have these opportunities and yeah, is you know, if Winx goes to Royal Ascot, I want to be there. I want to be everywhere, but yeah. So, but there are certain demands that you have to meet.
1: You said you're still holding with black caviar yeah. over
2: Winks. Uh, do you do you but, enjoy the needle you get from people? Yeah, them? I do. I've always enjoyed that as the idea that I loved black caviar, which I'm totally guilty of. Is uh, I've really enjoyed the interaction with people on that front. I sort of feel like if you were living in the '30s and it turned out your reputation was you loved Farlap, you'd probably feel like you'd spent your time well. Yeah. But equally, you can't and you can't just jump from one to the next to the next. What would it say about me if I jumped to yeah. Winks from Black Caviar? You'd all sit there and go, "Hey, where's the loyalty?" Swapping so, horses midstream. Yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to stick with what I saw and just admire from afar what Winks is doing. Well, when- Tommy Woodcock
1: used to sleep in the stall with. Yeah. Fire, so, <laughs> you know, there's there a lot of love for. <laughs>
2: <laughs> when you went to Royal Ascot
0: in 2012 and put on the top hat and the tails and all the rest and, and called that famous victory, which was won by... I can't remember what the margin was, but, you know...
2: Yeah, it was a short head, I think it was. It, it
0: felt all, like a nose. A short head or a nose, whatever it was. It was it was a clutch call for you, going all the way to yeah. one horse race. And the pressure around that day and the preparation required to call a race like that being so far away and other variables as well. And to, to nail it, how satisfying was that?
2: Yeah, it was... It's a really interesting experience. I... <laughs> Because I was writing the book, there was a lot at stake. Sort of, I hadn't thought about the call a whole lot, which probably sounds a little bit ridiculous. As yeah. It really was about the last chapter of the book. And um, it's one of the rare times I've felt like I've had a stake in what I was calling. Like it really did matter that she won. The rest of the time is history is history and you're there to document it. So it was a fascinating week. It was. It's one of the great experiences I've had. I had a calling post uh, literally in the rafters of the grandstand. Uh, It didn't have the equipment there that you would typically like to have. Um, They were a long, long way away, so I wasn't. I wasn't set up in a broadcast box with my racing binoculars and that sort of thing. So there was a a bit of a margin for error in it. Uh, I didn't. uh, I'm happy to say I didn't. See Luke Nolan ease up on Black Caviar in that way. It was, and you know, the call—it's it, there as, as Moonlight Cloud starts to flash at Black Caviar, and, and that's what there. And and on the line, I felt there was definitely a margin, and was happy to go with that. But it wasn't until I got downstairs afterwards that you realised the magnitude of what had happened. He mm-hmm. dropped his hands, eased up on her, and then just pushed her out to the end, which was. Um, you know it was incredible to document in the book, but in the moment that it happened, I wasn't in a position to be able to see that. So you know I don't think technically it's a um, it's a very good call even, but it, 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 the last 25 seconds is very true to what unfolded, and I've never been more tempted to hold my breath at the end of that than in anything else that I've done and that would have been hopeless on radio but there was that that was that gasping element to it which lasted for hours afterwards like well, I can vividly recall it felt like she had lost which was a, such a pity for Peter Moody and for Luke Nolan and for all the owners and it wasn't until the party later on that night that they started to decompress and actually enjoy what had happened. They'd gone and they'd won. And for all that went wrong and for all the dramatics and theatrics around it, it, it's the crowning moment of her career. And But it lives better in hindsight than it did on the day.
1: How do you forgive yourself when you feel like you've got something wrong? Uh, you,
2: you have to live with what happens. So all you can do is give yourself the best chance and if you fumble it, you fumble it. And, you know, it. You you dwell on them and you you're glum about it but as long as you gave yourself the best possible chance of getting it well you just have to live with the rest of it there's no point you can't go back and do it again you can't voice over the top of it you know the final stages of the Melbourne Cup you just have to get it right and that's the you know that's the pressure and the challenge of the job yeah but you have to get to a point where you go you've got to be able to live with what happens and what you say and, you know, it's just, if, if it goes wrong, then it's just me and Culper is, you know, it, it happened. must say,
0: when you made that comment about Bruce McEvoney earlier about how he goes home at night and, and ponders what he possibly should have said, I, I've had that feeling. I'm sure Jeff has as well. It, it's good to know that Bruce and yourself are both human. Yeah,
2: yeah. Three days after the Richmond Premiership, it finally dawned on me, oh, that's what it was. So, you know, what's there is fine. But you go, ah, oh, and it took three days and, you know, maybe that was the magnitude of it all. You know, oh, I wish that had come to me in the in the three minutes before the final siren. You've also been involved in,
0: in the World Game as well, and, and the next line relates to that. I'm yet to hear anyone make the case that Australian football is better off without Ange. My thinking about that line was how hard it must be for you sometimes to divorce yourself professionally from the way in which you develop these quite intimate relationships yep. on the couch on off-siders over many, many years. The Ange story itself, did you find that
2: particularly challenging to report on? I found it distasteful, and this, is, uh, this was a really good reflection, I think, of the way the modern landscape has been allowed to deteriorate. So Ange went from the key for in we trust. That's what it was. He took us to a World Cup and got us out credibly in a setup that wasn't very good. He won the Asian Cup in thrilling circumstances in a really unifying moment. And then over the course of about six months, it was allowed to be portrayed that he was the chief villain in Australian football and was essentially driven from the job. And it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous while it was unfolding. You know, talk about the national team is not a coach's play thing and you go well coaches in every team in every sport are forever pushing and pulling and experimenting and trying because if they don't get their team better uh, you, what are you doing in the job Australia had to go the longest way possible to make the world cup but they made the world cup and it wasn't depicted as a triumph and this is where I get back to mm. the idea of entitlers we're not entitled to make a world cup And I don't think this is a particularly good team. I think he got the absolute most out of it. And Australia made the World Cup. And the toll of it was that he was driven from the job. So we lived through a phase where we went, we must have an international coach. And then it was, the international coaches don't give us anything that looks like Australian football. So the commentary was, we must develop... Uh, an Australian brand of football to have an identity, and Ange came in and he did that, and he was working on it. It was a long-term project, and it had peaks and troughs. And then it was the no, you can't be doing this. We must go back to an international coach. So the setup now is we have we have a a fly-in coach to take a team to a World Cup, and then we have Graham Arnold take the reins after that. Is and as I say, I would like to hear one person credibly make the case that we are better off, that Ange is not taking this team to the World Cup. I just don't think it's possible. And the people who really ran that six months' worth of vitriol and gathered all of social media to it, I think they should reflect. I think they should ask themselves. And I think they were completely wrong in what was going on, and they're completely wrong now, and there should be a bit of accountability for that.
1: There are a lot of things I love about Australian sport. The thing I probably love least is that sense of entitlement. It crops up when the test team loses uh, there, there's an expectation that we're supposed to win, we deserve to win uh, and that it's it's unfair you know like you say, supposed to make a world cup when you go back to two thousand and six and it was such an incredible uh, feeling of relief that Australia had even made a World Cup in the first place i mean is that down to privilege? Is that the lucky country being
2: a bit too lucky what's your take yeah on that? i'm It's probably a little bit of all of that, but it's deeply ingrained now in how we follow our sport. But yes, the sense of entitlement I think is a terrible pity and it plays out, I think, very vividly at the Olympics. So I'm a believer, and I run a little bit against the grain here, that how Australia has been performing at recent Olympics, that actually is our level. Mm. It's seven, eight or nine gold medals. I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's not 15 gold medals. And when we go with the expectation and the prediction of 15 or 16 gold medals, that's just, it's historically inaccurate. There was a short period of time where we were blessed with generational athletes, generational athletes who won the bulk of them themselves. And then there was a home games in there, which always skews everything. I suspect we're back exactly where we have been and where we belong. The idea of punching above our weight, I think we punch very neatly at our weight but what it means is and i can tell you this from the rio experience is it's all shrouded in disappointment it's shrouded in what is not one rather than what is one the punch-up between john Coates and the sports commission had started it was the saturday morning paper and overnight, Chloe Esposito had won the gold medal in the modern pentathlon, which is one of the great upsets of modern times. But the punch-up was already on, so it, it's in you know the gold medal that that pinnacle moment of achievement, which is the medal we all hope for, is when it's completely unexpected and then it's done. You know that's oh, we missed it, and it is because we are we're counting the victories, and that's that's no way, for me that's no way to follow sport. It doesn't mean there there shouldn't be scrutiny. And this is, I think James Magnusson made a great point around the difference between summer and winter Olympics. So Magnusson had the most bruising experience Mm. of a modern Olympian in London. He was the alpha male of the team. The whole setup was built around him leading the relay team to gold and winning individual gold. He missed the individual gold by one one-hundredth of a second, and he was the pariah of Australian sport. And the whole breakdown in the, in the swimming system was basically nailed to him. His individual performance was a sporting failure. He was half a second slower than he was at the trial, so if he swims that time, he wins by a body length, whatever you know, half a second represents. Um, and the flow on from losing gold as opposed to winning silver. Now, he looks at the Winter Olympics, and everything that is won is um, is celebrated because there is a... There's a gimmick element to it as we all tune in and we know nothing about moguls and we know nothing about half pipe and snowboarding, it's there before us, so Australians win medals. Mm. Is Scotty James gets to the final run in the half pipe, the gold medal's up for grabs, uh, and he falls. And The celebration is he won the bronze medal. As I think Magnusson looks at that and goes, Hang on, that was me. I won the silver medal and I got pilloried mm. for it. And there is that, so there's an absolute difference which is tangible and perfectly understandable in both of those, and I, I understand why Magnuson would feel it.
1: Historically, is that also down to the AIS providing a bit of an anomaly for a couple of Olympics where Australian sport was better funded than other countries? And now yeah, so I by.
2: think Ian Thorpe, Susie O'Neill, Sydney Olympics. Whatever the spread of medals is, yeah. it's concentrated in three games Absolutely. with generational athletes and this the buffer of the Sydney Games. And I, I just truly think we're back where we have always been and where we properly reside. Especially when you consider how quickly it came after Seoul
0: with three gold medals and so on. Yeah, and there
2: are a lot of really good decisions made and you have to be vigilant. You can't just, and I'm with John Wiley here, is you can't just accept that uh, we don't win as many gold medals as we used to. You have to set yourself up to achieve as much as possible. But, When you put in a system that mercenarily hunted gold medals and you put a number on that and you don't meet that number, the conditioning is Australia failed. That's no way to live in Olympics.
1: You said, I don't understand reverse sweeping Bitcoin, Donald Trump's tweets, Donald Trump's presidency, renovation game shows and why my daughters can't buy an Elise Perry bat from Rebel. Was there any anxiety about bringing the US political side into it, given that there was always going to be a reactionary core of the audience who might react against that? Uh, was
2: it something you felt you had to say? It's just in the things I don't understand, Is it's just one of the things I don't understand. The people in the Fox footy office will tell you for about 18 months out, I thought it was very legitimate that Trump was going to end up being president and that people were dismissing it in a way that... Uh, because it didn't seem to make sense, it would never happen. And it, it, from a long way out, and I have an interest in these things, it truly looked like it was going to happen, I felt. And that there was a fear involved in all of that, as if people don't wake up to what's happening, and there's, there's so much revisionist history, and there's did the Democrats completely misread what was going on, and Bernie Sanders was their agent for change, but they were wedded to this idea that it was Hillary's time. And so they completely misread the play for a long lead-up period. And then it led to that that horrible day when, you know, watching... I, I was travelling to Sydney that day. The last thing that happened was Barry Cassidy's tweet yep. that it was over, that he wouldn't win. And then by the time I turned the phone back on in Sydney, it, it, it had moved on those graphs, which showed the way that the counting moved across an hour and a half. And so I'm a bit of a believer that all the old... Analytics in politics are broken but they are still being applied in the same way as if, if people will be told how to vote in the way that they used to and they clearly won't and the more you tell them the more they'll go no we're not doing that we'll do whatever we want to do and the measure, the measurements, as you take Brexit and the complete misread of the the analytics there as to how people were going to vote, roll that into America, like opinion polls at the moment, they just make me laugh because they are trying to measure an old world that has moved rapidly and will never settle again. And you'll have a perspective on this, Adam, but yeah, so it, it troubles me that I'm, I don't. I'm like most people. It troubles me that Donald Trump is the notionally the most powerful leader in the, free, in the free world.
0: When I heard that line, my radar went off that you're going to you're going to cop it for this. And you did, on Twitter and social media. That was the one line pulled out of this whole mission statement where people said, classic A B S Yeah, speech. yeah. <laughs> you know the drill, yeah. obviously. I, I went on Reddit last night, as I'm prone to do for my sins. This is one comment. What a dumb nerd. LOL, go pies, in
2: response to the yeah, com- yeah, comment. Yeah, yeah.
0: Did you know that that was going to be something that would lay an early marker for you, that you were going to say what you thought on issues that were it in house collingwood going to get
2: Yeah week. yeah so our go pies man he has to vote in November in the state election he has to vote in the next federal election that's our system it's yeah. compulsory voting so what does he use to go and when he goes to the ballot box is it's really important I think now more than ever people have to have an understanding of what the world is because if you end up with Donald Trump as president is was that negligence was it apathy what was it because um, it's not sense um, yeah the bit that I, I so I, the people who have me pinned as ABC only sort of have missed a bit I'm I'm tabloid newspaper trained so I was a cadet at the Herald Sun mm. I don't have a university degree I was taught to be a journalist at the Herald Sun I went to Channel 10 I work at Fox which is a news limited owned company And I worked for a long time at the ABC, but never in isolation. So the people who have me pegged as a left-wing ABC type are wrong. They're just wrong. Elise Perry was the second half of that sentence, Jared. You might yeah, yeah. A point
0: about women's sport there, which was a, a noti- noticeable one. Uh, where do we miss a trick here? How, um. did, how did it happen that women's sport got so big in individual sports, Olympic sports, swimming, track yep. and field, the individual sports that we follow, tennis, of course, golf for that matter with Carrie Webb, yet footy and cricket, the lifeblood of Australia, we took 20 more years to catch up, and even now we're only in the baby steps.
2: Yeah, so the Olympics are special, uh, so I don't think, you can roll that in. You know, Kathy Freeman, Susie O'Neill, Sally Pearson, Anna Mears. For a long period of time, the star of Australia's Olympics have been female. So I think you set that to the side. So, so the Matildas played a role. The Matildas won a knockout game at a World Cup. And the visibility of it grew. Uh, now, I understand people object to... You, know, you have a theory, people object to it. The country changed when Michelle Payne won the Melbourne Cup. It changed profoundly. It lifted the horizon on what sports fans were prepared to engage in with women's sport. And I think when the thesis is properly written, that will be the tipping point. And there were all these outstanding Australian sportswomen who weren't basking in the glow that they should have, broadly. Their achievements were there, but they weren't being recognised and elevated in the same way. And out the back of that, there was just this tidal wave. And, you know, you look at it now, Sam Kerr is the best footballer in Australia, male or female, it doesn't matter, When she goes out to play, she carries the national interest and she scores. She's phenomenal. least Perry, the double century that she made as sort of the rightful moment that she was finally entitled to and she got the AFLW as a social movement rather than a football competition. And it will settle into being a football competition over the next five to ten years, but it's not going to disappear because the people involved... And the women around it will simply not let it regress. Is we've finally we've finally crossed the threshold, and it's a really difficult landscape. Like with it comes legitimate criticism and scrutiny and analysis and ratings and sponsorships and all of that. But these are, these are the baby steps. But we're past the threshold where. it it was declared that women's sport wouldn't be watched and couldn't be profitable and there weren't careers to be had is we're there and it'll take a generation but we finally got past the threshold and the last thing to catch up is, and Shannon Gill from Kookaburri told me that there are a couple of women's bats but when my daughter started to play cricket in year 7 and I wanted to go and buy her a bat is the lag was is I wanted a Meg Lanning bat or an Elise Perry bat and I could only get a Dave Warner bat or a Steve Smith bat. and You go, there's there's such a lag here. And I did for one moment contemplate, I wonder if it, you could get the licensing rights to this and get it on the shelves, because I'll be like so many fathers and daughters, because <laughs> we're all looking for the same thing, and we will all buy it for them. I don't want Beck to have the kaboom. I want her to have the the Elise Perry bat. I grew up with the Alan Border Duncan Fernley five-star special. That's what we've done as kids, and... That's what our daughters should be able to have, and I'm sure in a year or two years, but there, there is a lag there. Another line from you
0: here. Like a good few of you, I imagine, my dad taught me most of what I know about sports, supplemented by Bruce McEvaney and Les Carline. On Bruce, you've been linked for so long to be the successor to Bruce one day, to be the narrator on TV as well as radio and those big football
2: moments. How do you respond to that sort of assumption? It's, there's nothing you can do about it. It's not my choice, so I don't think about it, but I do think about Bruce. Like He is one of the world's great broadcasters. And when you hear him do the 100-metre final at the Olympics, you know, go and find me a better call. Of all of the people who are sitting in the stand doing it for their countries, go and find me a better call than what Bruce produces. And I suspect when when his time comes, it will... Uh, we've lived through it, but it will suddenly dawn on us going, wow, how blessed we have been that we have had the best sports broadcaster in the world telling us these stories for such a long period of time. And whether we took it for granted or sort of people go in and out of, um, of fad as to, you know... I, I understand there are people who criticise Bruce and you go, well, that's, just, that's very comforting is you will never please everybody all of the time. But we will look back and go he always had the, the right words and the right tone for the moments that will live. And, and so that side of it is something to clearly aspire to. But also just to appreciate that we had it we've and we've still got it and not to miss it. Don't miss it. This is so good. It reminds me of
0: the way that Laurie Oakes was spoken about in my last few years. Yeah, yeah. It was quite clear Laurie was going to retire at some stage, but they hadn't quite worked out who was going to replace him. There wasn't like a, you're the natural successor to Laurie yeah, Oakes. Yeah, and so. it, you
2: can't succeed him. So whoever takes up the reins of Bruce's duties it, it's not a continuation mm. of Bruce it's not a continuation of Laurie it's, Laurie's an inspiration uh, for any journalist is don't run with a pack those sorts of things Is but you can't be that so whoever um, moves in after but you can't be Bruce you have to be your own person and you have to do it in your own way and then the body of work that was Bruce's sort of it, it, it lives because of it
1: Tim Lane was another hero of yours, yeah. and uh, working with him for the first time, how was that?
2: Uh, it was great. Is that I'm a big believer that in a in a two man commentary team, um, in a football game, is the chemistry is vital. So you learn and you try to live up to, uh, and you take threads away from every game, and it makes you better every time that you go. And yeah, is it's a it's a shared experience, I reckon. It's, it's very hard to do in isolation, and the better the people you work with, the better you will inevitably be.
1: Another line from you: My wife is smarter than me, although she reserved her sporting passions for the committee room at Flemington and Crown on the afternoon of the Brownlow. Is she the most understanding person in the world? Because yeah, I think. You're Claire is around
2: the planet constantly. We're a partnership, Claire and I. So we've been going out since we were seventeen, and we were married when we were twenty-two. So everything that we've done, we've done together. Family life, travel. And I feel really lucky with that is that everyone has their own experiences of when they travel and then when they set up. But Claire and I have been through it all together. So we make our decisions together. She's made enormous professional sacrifices to indulge what I've been able to do. We've got three kids who are 13, 10 and 5 and that's clearly the hardest part of the job Is is missing moments in their lives and their upbringing and part of the, the footprint at sen is actually it sounds weird but it's a more family foot friendly footprint than what the abc was which is a bit harder to sell at home when you've been to minneapolis and south africa <laughs> and
0: flying back for two nights in between
2: yeah you? yeah but i'll get i'll have a legitimate day off each week during the footy season which i haven't had since 360 started so I'll be there on, you know, hopefully Sundays or Fridays, but maybe a little bit of sport and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, that's a balancing act, and you can't do it selfishly. You have to do it together, and we are great partners, and I love Claire dearly, and, yeah, the kids sort of get used to what it is, but it's never easy when you go to leave. Is that That's always the hardest part when you go to leave for a couple of weeks it's never quite the same when you're phoning in from home. Jared, you said, I believe the sporting gods are
0: real, vengeful and perverse. So do I. If you were king, would there be odds on the telly of footy and cricket as we were watching play take place?
2: There wouldn't be the encouragement for gambling. It happens so quickly and it's happened so overwhelmingly and we will come to regret it as a society. So when we were growing up, sport was about tipping, but it now feels like too much of sport is about betting, and I'm not puritanical about this. I mm. do have a bet on the races. I don't bet on sport, um, but I'll, I have a punt on the races, so I'm not um, I'm not adverse to it. But it, it, it was a wave of free money which sport overdosed on heavily without really any thought for what the consequences of that might be. So. When I turn on the NFL game on Monday morning and I follow it, but I'm not exactly up to speed with where we all are, I want to know who's the favourite and who's the underdog because it helps my understanding of the game. Are the Broncos expected to win here or if they win, is it an upset? That's the only framing I'll accept around odds. And it's really important. It's important to know who am I expecting to win here so I understand if there's an upset or not. The rest of it is just, it's regrettable. And it's not regrettable that you can bet on sport. It is regrettable how not only normalized but encouraged and for a period of time and this has been wound back it felt like to really be involved you had to have a bet and I think that that was a really terrible overreach. We
0: haven't had a chance to talk about your call of the Super Bowl because your statement predates that. Just give us an insight how you went from not having called NFL football before to giving a commentary on it that American websites are judged as the best call of the biggest moment of the game. Just give us a quick snapshot of how you managed to pull that off.
2: So I had a month and the first thing I did was started to listen to it on radio. So Westwood One had the, the national calls of the playoff games. So the first step was to how do they do it and it immediately made sense to me and in fact i was of the view that the, it was preferable on radio than how it is on television as having listened to a couple of games and then you start to work through the mechanics okay so how does this set up each play sets up the play action is short and then there's the reflection on what happened and the you know one of the parts the ball always goes to the quarterback He's got an option left or right, or he's got about four options in front of him. Is he going to pass? Is he going to throw? And then who are those players? The rest is fully immersing yourself in the game and telling the story. And that's, we've discussed that. That's what I like to do, that if I have a style, that's my style. I just want to tell you the story. So whether you really understand the intricacies of it or not, I wanted you to be able to tap into it. By the time I got there, I was really comfortable. And then you can either do it or you can't. And you don't know until it starts. But what I knew is it would sound great because I'd been listening to it. So unless I totally botched it, it was going to sound great coming through the radio. But it was the Super Bowl itself, it was like arriving in an Olympic city, but with only one event. So from the moment you got there, you were totally immersed in it. The game was utterly brilliant with moments, so many moments, Um, and yeah, to be able to tap those. And then it's the thing is, it either comes to you in the moment that it happens or it doesn't. And in a couple of those moments, I just sort of felt like it, I said the right things. And the, you know, the most gratifying part was the reaction of the audience back home who would either resent the fact that we were calling a major American event, which in truth is the biggest international sporting event of the year, or they would go, yeah, we're totally into this, even though we only vaguely understand it, and it was the latter. And so I found that extremely gratifying that people were able to tap into it. And that's part of the ambition is we want to take the sports loving public of Melbourne and because of technology everyone around Australia we want to take them to these events why wouldn't you want to be there so instead of that flinch reaction going don't do that you shouldn't be doing that you go no no no, come with us it'll be great imagine if one day we could take you to the US Masters you'd want to be there I would want to be there whether it's me or not as a listener you go yeah yeah take me there so let's drop the oh, why would you do that and go yeah take us there it'll be awesome
1: Looking at those events around the world, you said, "'I believe the deeds of an individual, Cathy Freeman in Sydney, Cadell Evans in France, Ashton Agar at Trent Bridge, can brighten the mood of the entire country.'" To look at the relationship between Indigenous Australians and migrant Australians, from my perspective, it hasn't got any better since Cathy Freeman won that gold medal. We seem to have as negative an attitude from non-Indigenous Australians towards Indigenous people as as ever. Are we less equipped to celebrate a moment like that than we were at the time? Is there a path forward to make that improve?
2: That's a hard question where I don't feel like I have a great level of expertise on the social and cultural side of it. What I do know is that... No, I think the, it was such a transcending moment and Cathy Freeman's pride in being an Indigenous person, uh, I think, touched all of us and it may not have changed things. There is, sometimes I feel like if we narrowed it down to footy, for a lot of people, their only connection to an Indigenous person might be their player, might be Eddie Betts yeah. I think Eddie Betts provides a disproportionate amount of joy. I think clearly beyond any other player. is Lance Franklin is different. Cyril Rioli is different again. There's something about Eddie Betts. And it is so profoundly disturbing that the joy that he provides us is then tempered by the racial abuse that he gets from... You say from time to time? From time to time is routinely in my book. Why would, and I think that's grossly unfair and it's a miserable reflection of us as a people, someone who provides all of us with a disproportionate amount of joy then gets exposed to something which profoundly affects the way that he's able to engage with society and with his own sport. I think that's a dismal, dismal moment for us as a society. I don't know the way through it, but when it happens, it is so deeply upsetting
0: the last line, Jared, of your, your statement. By way of a last first word, as it were, I've seen a few movies recently. I rather like Tom Hanks with Ben Bradley's legendary, My God, the Fun, but have settled on Gary Oldman's Churchill, Here's Not to Buggering It Up. Jared, is that the tightrope you need? Is this kind of how you operate? You need that level of exhilaration? You need to know that if it doesn't quite go to plan, that it will be a mess. Do you need that to stay at the peak of your powers to keep you finely tuned?
2: Uh, I like the, It's Live. So, if your first hour doesn't go well, you've got your second hour to make amends for it and then you've got your third hour to fix it up again. So nothing is a little bit like sport, it's not lost. It is I guess you can lose you can lose a game in the first session, can't you? But you can't lose the broadcast in the first session. So there's always the opportunity to improve. So I strive to learn every broadcast and I try to improve every time I do it and that's uh, that won't be any different to the way people lead their professional lives in any other sphere it's just it's in something that we all have an engagement in so there'll be moments that don't work Uh, I think the modern phrase is fail fast (laughs) and move on to the next thing I'm totally up for that but if you don't try something I'm not quite sure why you're doing it so I'm not a let's not swim between the flags let's be a bit bolder than that and My God, the fun is, you know, that first morning when I got told Roger Federer is on the line, you go, Yes, how good is this? And this morning back in Melbourne, Tiger Woods was on the line with Mm. Gary Lyon and Tim Watson. You go, So there's the adrenaline shot if you're the one talking. But then there's this moment if you're the audience, we're about to hear Tiger Woods. My God, the fun. So, I. You have to be prepared to take chances. You put yourself out there. There's some people who'll never go for you, and that's okay. I think there's the capacity to do something that people will really enjoy if they open their hearts and their minds up to it. And something a little bit different is why would we want everything the same all the time? So let's be bold, and I'm the only one with anything at stake here. Everyone else just gets to come along and join in the conversation, and I hope people do, you know, as... I love talking sport beyond all else. As I don't know how long we've been doing this, but I reckon we could do this for the next three hours, <laughs> the three of us. And this is how we all are with sport. So let's do it. Let's go to the great events of the world and let's document them. Let's talk about them. And let's just have, let's remind ourselves how great sport is in all of our lives.
0: What a wonderful sentiment to finish it on. Jared. you've been incredibly generous to talk to us at such great length today. Indeed, you've been incredibly generous to Jeff and I over the last few years. Someone as professional and diligent and passionate as you are. And thanks so much today for joining the final word. Absolutely
2: my privilege and all power to the both of you.
0: is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Not often you get someone on the other side
1: of the desk who's usually asking all the questions the one who's being interrogated by us. Yeah, I mean it's, it's interesting to reverse people's positions and also I guess when you focus so much on sport to get a broader view of things to talk about politics to talk about broader cultural stuff and, and to get into someone's personal relationship mm. with sport where in commentary you're creating someone else's personal response to it you're providing the voice for it but you've got to keep yourself out of it well he mentioned the
0: 89 grand final that for me just that's just wonderful hearing just how important that all is to him and i know that as rabid football supporters as well as cricket broadcasters and cricket writers we know that feeling all too well <laughs>
1: Yeah, and interesting to talk at length about the craft of commentary. Now, that's something that maybe you and I are more obsessed with than other people. But as we're going forward on the show, we'll talk to cricketers, we'll talk to administrators, but we'll talk quite a bit to broadcasters and commentators as well because they're a particular point of interest. If you've got any suggestions for people you'd really like us to interview, let us know. The email address is finalwordcricket.com. At gmail.com, or you can find either of, of us on Twitter. Yeah, we don't have a
0: show Twitter handle, but it's Jeff Lemon Sport for You and it's Collins Adam for Me. Now, we have reached Cape Town. We were on the road, as you mentioned at the start of the show, Jeff, for the better part of three days. Most people came straight to Cape Town via air. We decided to drive down the garden route.
1: Fools, it, they were.
0: Fools. Absolute fools. I think we've got, we've, we've nailed this for a relatively cheap high car rental and jumping behind the wheel. I think we've nailed it. it. It has been just a wonderful experience.
1: Yeah, and I've driven in far more terrifying places, so, you know, that was all. That <laughs> It was all quite reasonable, but especially the last day of that drive when you're coming along this coastal road, it's literally, you know, the road on the cliff by the sea, the sparkling blue ocean, the perfect beaches you jump out of the car and dunk in the surf and then get back in and keep driving and apparently they film all of the car advertisements in the world on this one stretch of road
0: Yeah, I like that local
1: factoid from one of the guys we met down here, it's easy to see why uh, Also apparently all the shampoo ads are done in a waterfall along, <laughs> along that area as well so <laughs> quite quite legitimately
0: So we've, got, uh, we've reached Cape Town, it is different here though, the climate uh, especially when it comes to water shortages and the feel of the place is different, we're in a big city rather than a small town.
1: Yeah, I mean it's quite a jolly sort of city we went out to the, the carnival style parade last night I think is a a little bit less um, complex than Brazil's perhaps. (laughs) Um, Far more family friendly as well. Yeah yeah most of the uh, most of the parades were sort of you know groups of local high school kids doing dances or marching bands or you know the the Chinese dragons were out there and that was good fun in the city but you can feel that anxiety. We're both from Melbourne and we had that 10-year drought through most of the early 2000s and there's that underlying tension to a place when you, you're catching your shower water in a bucket and storing it in the bath to fill up the toilet tanks and it, it's a city that's quite close to the edge at the moment. Even though
0: the ground at Newlands won't be literally affected by it because they've got a bore water um, storage facility there so the actual ground itself will be fine but everything else for the Australian and South African sides, will be affected. Talk about even living, flushing the toilet mm-hmm. is a taboo at the moment so it gives you a feel for in the In certain circumstances, circumstances. In c- there's, there's, there's <laughs> a level of urgency you know, <laughs> the
1: low grade um, you leave it. Every time someone says that they've got water at Newlands so though I keep thinking it's B-O-E-R in my head <laughs> I'm just smelling it that way I'm like oh, what do you mean does it speak Afrikaans what's, what's going on it's one all after Port
0: Elizabeth yes. I was
1: I admire South Africa for the way they
0: bounced back in this in the second test match in Port mm-hmm. Elizabeth I thought they could have easily dropped their bundle after at the end of day one it was fairly clear that Kikisa Rabada would miss the rest of the series yeah. and they, instead, they, they found an extra gear. DeVilliers was outstanding. Rabada was rubbed out, but again, he was every bit as important in the final analysis of the test match as De Villiers. We leave the first half of the series seeing two big countries with a fantastic rivalry landing
1: one blow on each other, which should, as, as it stands, develop uh, into a, a wonderful series. I think Rabada was basically saying, well, bugger it, you know, I'm, I'm out, I'm probably missing, so I'm just going to go hell for leather and uh, at least make sure that I affect this test match. And, and if they do manage to get up in this series, so much that it will be down to him. If we're
0: not going to get Dale Steyn playing in this Test match, which would be absolutely perfect, given the long record he has over a decade playing this country, I think that Morkel's the next best as far as the story is concerned. Playing at Newlands four years ago, that's where he broke Michael Clark's shoulder in one of the most fearsome displays of fast bowling. We've seen in modern times that he was out of form badly at the first Test match at Durban, but, you know, this is a champion of the game for a reason. He's so close to that 300 um, wicket threshold. I think he's three away from breaking that record there as well, so a lot to play for for him. I think it would be a wonderful way for him to finish his test career influencing one more test match against Australia.
1: Well, yeah, one or two but influencing a series because that's always been the thing with Morkle. He's a good bowler but he hasn't been a great bowler against Australia. Mm. The Aussies take him apart more than anyone else. I think he averages over 40 against Australia yeah, as 20, opposed to yeah, 27 against 27, everyone that's else. Right. But yeah.
0: the idea of him coming in and bowling fast at Newlands which is, yep. if it is quick, if they do leave some grass on it, mm-hmm. he's got the perfect height,
1: obviously, uh, to generate some seriously awkward times for the Australian batsman which would be wonderful to see at his pace. But he's got to be. Able able to turn that into wicket-taking potential and that was the thing you know you talk about the Michael Clark spell and it was fearsome but it didn't get him out mm, didn't true. get David Warner out they both made hundreds Australia yep. won the test match it's a bit of a Wahabria's kind of uh, factor with Mourne Morkel, where he can bowl some terrific spells but it doesn't necessarily mean that he wins games for the team and, and maybe that sort of short pitch barrage from him works against teams that are less suited against it. You know. But when he finally pitched the ball up at Durban, he got wickets. Same so. with Rabada at Port Elizabeth, really. His first spell was
0: less potent when he pitched the ball up later with the ball reversing just a tad after the lunch break. That's when he really did the most damage. I kind of like the way that he um, set up Warner. He was at his toes or he was at his head and, and he beat the bat a couple of times in that spell. Uh, Warner looked uh, you know, a, a fraction slower than he normally would. He wasn't up on the balls of his feet punching through point, that's for sure. He eventually picked him up with a snorter. So mm. that was a great... If anything, I'm, I'm most sad about the Rabada thing. is not getting to see him bowl against David Warner again. He seems to save his best for the opposition's best players. He's got that extra gear he can work up into. When he knows there is something on the line, far more riding on it than before. His strike rate, I love the fact that his strike rate's below 40. He's one of four bowlers in the history of test cricket to have a strike rate under 40. And two of those guys bowled in the 1890s. So right. you chuck Shane Bond in there too. I think he's got Shane Bond covered as well at the moment. Yeah, so I think he, he does. So he might be the third best ever. The sample size is big enough now. He's played enough test cricket over the last couple of years for that actually to mean something.
1: We've had a 10-wicket match for the fourth time in his career. That's mm. four times in 28 tests. and Antini was four times in over 100 test yep. matches. And Dale Steyn has five in 86. Speaking of best players in the teams, Steve Smith has been kept very quiet. And it's Keshav Maharaj, not fearsome fast bowling, but... Wiley left arm spin. They're always wily, aren't they?
0: Whenever I see Kesha of Maharaj in the school book, I always think of Kesha. A friend of mine went on tour with Kesha many years ago and there was one rule when you're on the Kesha tour bus, you can't mention the name Katy Perry. I wonder if it's the same in the wow. South African change room. He's been brilliant. Um, especially at Durban, the way he bolstered Smith and set him up. That was the big moment of the test match. That was the moment, wasn't it? We yep. saw what Smith can do in the second innings when huge games were on the line, i.e. last year at Pune. And once that moment it occurred, it was relatively downhill for the Australians, notwithstanding what Kawaja was able to do in the final session
1: Katy Perry really broke through with what is a classic cricket song if you think about it you're hot and you're cold you're yes and you're no you're up and you're down you're in and you're out you know no prep's
0: gone into that I should add you know that off the top of your head oh,
1: of course I do you're, you're in and you're out of the side absolute cricketing terminology you're yes and you're no you're yes no wait mo- oh, that, that's shit. a tribute to Dean Jones
0: I heard as well yeah exactly
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> you, had, you had a cat named after Dino that's no I,
0: I, I had two cats called Dino both of them their demise came due to a vehicle not being quick enough between the wickets.
1: But a bit of hesitation yeah. started out got halfway down turned around tried to yes, go back yes no wait sorry <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but um, it's it's long enough ago. Is it funny yet? Oh, come on! I think so.
0: I think if you had cats die on the road named Dipper and and uh, and Dino, I think we can laugh about that now. I don't think either of the men in question would be too worried about it. No, and you know the cats are in a better
1: place. I think
0: so as they've, well. They've better gone. than my backyard.
1: Exactly. They've gone. Some, I'm making the sign of the cross right now. If you you can't see that, notorious,
0: notorious religious man Jeff Lennon. Yeah,
1: exactly. Me and Matthew Hayden, Christians yeah, of right. convenience. Absolutely. Wasn't that the terminology?
0: Didn't we start talking about Keshav Maharaj about five minutes ago? We did. What but I want to say. About Maharaj, is what I love more than anything about this analysis is that Smith against all bowlers since the start of 2017, so all forms of bowling, averages over 100 except when you're splicing left arm spin when it's 20. Mm. So he's, mm. I don't buy too much into it of course it's Steve Smith his record speaks for itself sure. and he's been playing against some fantastic left arm spinners including yeah. Harath and, and Jadeja and others but nonetheless it, it does provide the South Africans a marginal mental edge it's something I'll certainly chat to him about on the field. Yeah
1: I mean it's, I it, like it. It. it's interesting Smith's not too worried and no one else really is either I think and if you're playing against left arm spinners you're more likely to get out to one mm. if they don't have an off spinner you can't get out to an off spinner <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is partly just a matter of the numbers.
0: Usman Khawaja made a pretty good point the other day when talking to us in Port Elizabeth. It's that great players, if they they would average 80 if they never failed. Mm. I mean, and he's right. Fundamentally, the best players in the game don't always go along every time they pick up the bat and make a match winning
1: contribution. We're just conditioned to it with Smith, but that's not how it is over a longer period of time. And Usman Khawaja played, I wouldn't necessarily say magnificently, but it was a really gutsy innings. He wasn't in perfect Nick. He was playing and missing a lot and he played the odd beautiful shot through the covers but it never meant that he was on top and he had to really fight hard and gave Australia a little bit of hope towards the end of that test.
0: Alternate reality if Australia lose the test match and Khawaja fails in the second dig at Port Elizabeth I suspect we'd be talking about his position in the side. Again, I'm not saying that's the right thing or the wrong thing, but I think mm. it'd be a talking point. It was crucially timed. He's 75 uh, in the second innings at PE. Could not have came at a better moment in terms of his own career arc away from home. He was mm. dropped in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago for the third Test match. He didn't feature in the Bordegavska Trophy. He was the reserve batsman. Shaw Marsh jumped the queue there. Last year in Bangladesh, he was dropped after one Test match. When it really mattered in Chittagong and they really needed to win, they punted him. So there is, again, a decent sample size of material suggesting he's got a problem away from home. So it made it all the more important that he was able to Make a contribution in the first half of this series, which gets him into it. Well, he played one really important innings
1: in this country years ago in two thousand and eleven, which seems a very long time ago. The big run chase in Johannesburg when he missed the Cape Town Test where they were bowled out for forty seven and he came in they were chasing well over three hundred and he made sixty three there that was really important and got Australia most of the way to that win so he's done it years ago to some degree, and he's done it last week, so it 's canny Push on through this series and do it again. Big job for the Queensland captain, lots of state captains. Did Matthew Hayden ever captain in Queensland? He must have, but I don't at know whether he was the
0: formal captain because you think it was Stuart
1: Law was a skipper yeah. well into the 2000s. So he probably didn't, actually, yeah. The mention of Matthew Hayden before made me think of it. Uh, when he made 100 in a Shield game and there was no sign of the cross and Jimmy Ma at the other end said to him, what's the matter, Haydos? Doesn't God like the Shield? <laughs> 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 uh, 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 uh. <laughs> When you're sledging your own team, that's that's what I'm all
0: for, sledging. Yeah, you sure knew how to dominate an attack, as does AB de Villiers. Sorry, it's a, that's a that's a loose segue there, but I'm going to do it anyway because we haven't talked so about corny. AB yet. Your
1: segues are always so corny. We're there now, we're there
0: now. Let's <laughs> talk about AB. He was playing in a way that you rarely see a player that far ahead of everyone else in the series. That's yep. where he's at at the
1: moment. It's almost insulting to all of the other batsmen. He's kind of giving them a middle finger because they just... Look nowhere near him. Um, the way he came out, just the ease with which he did it. You know, everyone was struggling on that pitch, and he comes out and goes, "Oh yeah, run a ball. I'll just I'm just going to flip like a good length delivery over square leg for six with a pull shot. You know, just going to uppercut." nearly a six over the slips for my hundred. With a third man back as well. I yeah. like that aspect. It was such a bold way to bring it's up Going to go time. fine of the third man. I think yeah. I'm just going to place it about 10 metres fine. i land just inside the rope. Yeah, his
0: straight play is exquisite. Uh, his control at the crease, the way he batted with the tail, his game awareness, everything about the way he's doing it. To think that we even were considering him retiring at the end of this series. To think that he didn't play test cricket yeah. for nearly two years leading into well, what was Boxing Day last year. I feel like we've been sold short somewhat. We've missed two years of A.B. de Villiers potentially yeah. at his peak. Although in saying that, that might extend his career.
1: Well, it might and we might get a few more opportunities. It Let's might, do the maths on this. You might just keep
0: going. Oh, hang on. We, we do know, what we do know is that he's been playing against Australia since, since 2005. So this, in a way, would be a nice way to, to cap it off if he mm-hmm. did want to re- retire at the peak of his powers, if they win the series against Australia for the first time since readmission in 1992. But in saying that, when's the next time Australia plays Africa over here? It's 21-22. Mm. So, add five at six years on he'd be 40 then wouldn't that be something if AB's still running around when he's 40 I I dare to dream him and Nathan Lyon I want to see Nathan Lyon playing with his 41 and overtaking him Merily, yeah. I want to see AB de Villiers going around and passing all such and records. <laughs> I,
1: I relish that. Well, on a self-indulgent note, we had a great opportunity. This strange situation where I'm calling the games for the ABC, you're calling them for SEN, <laughs> and we were uh, standing in commentary boxes next to each other, calling AB's hundred and yeah. just kind of looking through the window, going, "How good is this?"
0: Yeah, that wasn't bad. It was a great moment uh, to be behind the mic and knowing that. You were seeing in innings that it wasn't just another 100. It... it was one of the special 100s. Yeah, and you just feel it sometimes when you're at a cricket ground when something's happening and you feel like you're part of it and that was just a wonderful moment. And also knowing that it was going to be match-winning and series-leveling and that yep. we were going to move to Cape Town. Davili is the older champion and Rabada the young champion are the reason why we're now so excited about what's coming up in a couple of days And, and what I'm
1: interested in is the inversion of what happened during the Ashes where Smith was dominant and Joe Root couldn't turn in a yes. dominant performance. So the, the opposing captains, one of them wasn't able to come to the party in this series with Villiers isn't the captain but he's sort of the spiritual leader he's been able to dominate the series Steve Smith hasn't yet and I really want to see what happens with that pressure on Smith because maybe he delivers something equally magnificent and if that happens we're in for a treat
0: either way it's going to be compelling cricket at Newlands this week we'll be there Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon I'm really looking forward to this Jeff I, I think sometimes when you're following cricket around as we do there, there's the, the risk of becoming a bit blasé going
1: from venue to venue but that's certainly not the case this week make sure that you jump on wisdom.com slash final word to grab your discount subscription there and also Also, don't forget, crucially, to please
0: drop us a review if you enjoyed what you heard earlier, especially with Jared, We're going to do plenty more of those sorts of interviews, but reviewing the podcast, especially on iTunes, does an awful lot in terms of the amount of people that get to hear this through their ears, and that certainly helps make this viable for us.
1: Yeah, it makes it more possible for us to keep doing this and do more episodes into the future, so push it around, pass it on. Anyone who might be interested, let them know. Thanks to Jared Waitley for coming on the show today.
0: This has been The Final Word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon will talk to you next week. I'm George Benson.
1: I ain't protected, brother. I ain't fenced. And if my future of my current senses that would be the same we've been doing for centuries. Sorry if I ran out to empty both this so you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you.